I have a thing that I call the two day rule. And that is, you know, if you feel a niggle or something weird that isn't normal soreness from training, then you take two days cross training that something that doesn't aggravate it. And then on day three, test it. But that means test around the block, like 20 yeah. minutes. You're willing yeah. to walk home and go. And if it's still there, two, two day rules still in effect. Hey folks, this is Travis Macy. I'm an athlete, author, speaker, and coach. Welcome to the Travis Macy Show. On this podcast, me and my dad, Mace, provide you with compelling conversations with interesting people about endurance sport, ultra mindset, exciting adventure, optimized performance, Alzheimer's resilience, organ donation, good reading, and more. Hey folks, welcome to episode 65 Boy, do we have a humdinger here for you today. Jeff Browning is a legendary ultra runner. Uh, man, this guy, just he's done just about anything and everything in, in ultra running. Uh, over 150 ultra running finishes uh, all over the world. Many high finishes at Western States, the Ultra Fjord in Patagonia, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, Ultra Trail Mount Fuji in Japan. Uh, he's got over 30 ultra wins, uh, most of them at the 100 mile distance. And uh, he's just a super interesting and uh, enthusiastic, energetic, and dynamic person. Uh, I was really interested to find out uh, Jeff's extensive history in mountain biking, also in rock climbing. He's done a lot of skiing. Uh, he's got three kids, uh, aged, what do you say, 10 to 19. And uh, he's just, uh, again, super interesting and, and thoughtful guy. Uh, Jeff makes a living as an endurance coach. Um, I think he'd be uh, a great person to uh, think about if you're considering uh, contacting a coach, and uh, I just really enjoyed talking with him. Uh, Jeff and I have known each other for, let's see, maybe seven years here. We met on the, the race course and uh, have enjoyed staying in touch. Uh, we get into a lot of stuff on this. Uh, most prominently, his recent fastest known time, or FKT, on the Grand Canyon two times rim to rim to rim. So, he basically uh, started at the south side of the Grand Canyon and ran back and forth uh, to the north side twice. Uh, we're talking about 85 miles here, and I think he did it in below 18 hours, so that's the, uh, the current record time. Um, very impressive. That's 23,000 feet of climbing and also that much descending. Um, fun to hear him tell that story. And he provides some great advice, uh, specifically in ultra running, on training, racing, fueling, cross-training, strength training, mobility. Lots of good stuff here. Uh, all right, I'll let Jeff uh, say it for himself. Here we are, episode 65. Uh, Dad is not here this week. He had a run scheduled with his buddy Dean. They're getting out on the trails in Evergreen, staying active, uh, but he will be back soon. Thanks, as always, to our presenting sponsors, The Feed and Kyoku. I spend most of my day coaching adult endurance athletes, and as you probably know, the fueling is a huge piece of 
what we do. That's where The Feed comes in. Check out thefeed.com slash Travis Macy to explore The Feed formulas. This is the first personalized supplement plan for athletes. Uh, I like that it includes multiple supplements that work together. Uh, You get them in a single pouch that's tailored to you and you don't have to worry about a whole bunch of different bottles and stuff. Um, I take my The Feed formula each night before I go to bed and uh, it's helping me chip away at some of these some of these old guy injuries, my back starting to hurt, uh, knees and joints starting to act up a little bit, and uh, the injury formula is uh, helping me along with some of those so I can uh, stay out there and keep running along with the donkeys. Uh, check it out, thefeed.com slash Travis Macy. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. Good to see you, dude. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. You've been on the list as a podcast guest from the start. And uh, here we are. Somehow we're 60 plus episodes in and this is the first time. So uh, awesome. Really, really good to see you. And, uh, you know, I was thinking back, Jeff, to uh, 2015. I took a road trip with my family up to uh, Salmon, Idaho to to do the Beaverhead Ultra Run up there. And um, I didn't know you and I don't think you knew me, but I remember I got on the bus. They bust us out to the start. It's like, you know, 3.30 or 4 a.m. or something. And 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 I look over and here's this guy sitting there and, and I'm thinking, first of all, this guy looks looks real serious. And uh, and second of all, I just kind of I felt this like energy, like this is like, man, I, I'm going to sit next to this guy. So I remember I sat next to you on that bus and, and uh, you know, who, who knows what we talked about, but we were chit-chatting and talking about running and family and whatever. And I thought, man, this this guy does have some good energy. And we, we got to spend some time together uh, out there on, on the trail in that race. And, um, you know, it's been been awesome to keep in touch with yeah, you. I recall trying to put big surges on in the in the middle of the race and then you catching me in the, when we got to altitude. Yeah, know, yeah, oh, we, <laughs> yeah that I race got up high. I know. I, yeah, when we were in that high stuff, we were hitting like, I think around 9,000 feet or something. And I, I kept looking on my shoulder and you just kept gaining on me. And I was like, <laughs> And it was like some roller ups, but it was yep. high. And that was when I lived in Bend. So I only lived at like 3,500 feet. Yep. And I just remember going, I just remember thinking, I, I need to run. He's running, but I can't run. All I can <laughs> yeah. do is hike. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that's right. Just, yeah. You just nicely went by and said hi and left me. Well, if memory serves me right, that was a good win. I think you were coming off an injury, and I was going pretty good. And then, and then we were able to uh, toe up again at the at the Hurt 100 um, in early 2016. And and in that one, you uh, you dominated everyone. And uh, (laughs) from from what I remember, you had the 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 gun went off, and and you took off off the trail, and uh, no one ever saw you again. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was that was a good one for you. So uh, yeah, and and we really, you know, I want to hear all about this uh, this latest adventure you've had on the on the Grand Canyon. Um, but before that, for for the listeners who aren't familiar with you, with you, uh, give us some background. You know, what are the what are the life uh, cliff notes for uh, for Gro- Go Bronco Billy, aka um, Jeff I, Browning? Oh man, <laughs> I have been running ultras. This is twenty uh, second season. Um, we're going into, I started in 2001, um, and lived in Bend, Oregon at the time. I now live in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, and, uh, I really got into the sport early just 
at more out of like curiosity and wanted to try it. And I wasn't coming at it from a race perspective. I was just coming at it to finish them and, and kind of, you know, back then my wife, we were getting ready to have our first, uh, child and she thought I was just trying to, you know, get that last craziness out of me before we had kids (laughs) and who would have thought it would have become a career. And, um, so, you know, fast forward 22 years and now we're, 150 plus ultra finishes and, you know, 40, 200s. And, um, you know, I, I, I came from a cycling background and traditional sports in the eighties, you know, I'm 50 years old. So, um, I grew up and went to high school in the late eighties and graduated in 1990 from high school. So long time ago. And, uh, you know, it was the Midwest. And so football and, and baseball and basketball and track and field were kind of the sports, that's what we did. And I rode three wheelers and, um, you know, grew up on a farm and, um, but ended up, uh, going to university of Missouri, um, in Columbia, Missouri and got into mountain biking. It was the early years of mountain biking. And I really got hooked on mountain biking, uh, when I was like 20 and, you know, it was probably 19, I guess I would have been 22 or let's see, 93. So I would have been 22. I got really got into mountain biking when I was in late college, um, had a bunch of buddies that were into it, got me into it. Um, it was the early years, right? I think production mountain bikes had only been in, in North America for maybe seven years or something at the time. So there are three, there are three bike shops that were kind of started to blossom, um, in the Midwest there in that college town cause we did have single track and some state parks that we could ride, ride trails in. And, um, and the MKT and Katie trail, which were like a rails to trails, um, thing that had just gotten redone, um, back in the early nineties. And so we really got into mountain biking, became a bike geek completely, you know, rode, I went to class and, you know, in in, uh, uh, SBD shoes and, um, <laughs> Um, rode my bike all over the place and, uh, um, really got into like racing a little bit for fun. I worked at a bike shop, a running and bike shop. So it was running shoes and bike and, and mountain bikes. And, uh, just really, really kind of, that was my introduction. I'd always been a runner a little bit, you know, three or four days a week. You know, I, I'd won the conference 800, um, my senior year in high school, but you know, football was on my radar and not track. Um, not running. I always thought running was, it it kept me fit for football, you know? So, um, I continued to do that. I had a dog in in college. So I continued to run three or four days a week, keep my dog from chewing up the sofa. (laughs) Um, and then I, I, I really, you know, when I moved, um, moved West in 90, 97, um, I, I moved to Colorado first Denver and got a job Mm -hmm. there as a graphic designer and, got really was into mountain biking and, but started dabbling in trail running a little bit and started mm. just, you know, still was running three or four days a week. Um, and then when I moved to Bend, I really got into ultra running. Like in 2000, I moved to Bend, Oregon and, uh, my buddy Rod Bean, um, longtime friend now was my first friend in town. And he was an ultra runner, just got into it, just done a 50 K and he'd done a few marathons and I'd always wanted to do a marathon, but I never had. So I started, I did a half marathon and a marathon in 2000 and then did a 50 K at the beginning of 01 and got hooked. Like it only took one race. It was muddy, muddy 50 K, but, you know, coming from a mountain biking and backpacking background and climbing, um, I got into in Denver. 
um, I really saw how light and fast came together. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like my, that was my like aha moment with ultra running is like, wow, I can go the same amount I do on my mountain bike, but I don't have to carry chain tool. I don't <laughs> have to carry, you know, <laughs> worry about getting a flat tire, you know? So it was just really like, and you don't, you don't have to worry about limitation on trails. I think that's a huge one. Mm. If you've been a really hardcore mountain biker, you realize like, well, I can't go into that wilderness area. Right. But once you're a climber, you're thinking about summits and, and when you're backpacking, you're thinking about cool routes to, to backpack in beautiful places. And then mountain biking, you're thinking about, wow, I can cover 20 miles in a day, you know? Yeah. And so when you put all those together, all of a sudden the limitations are off on like where I can go. I can go off trail if I need to. I can go up the side of a mountain if I want to, but light and fast really spoke to me. Mm. Um, and that's what really hooked me on the sport was the simplicity and the, uh, of it. And, um, and once you're fit, you can kind of go the same amount, almost, the, almost as fast as a mountain bike, um, yeah. you know, in most terrain. So, yeah. um, especially if it's more technical. So like that really spoke to me and I really enjoyed the, the training for it. And, um, you know, I definitely struggled with some injuries the first few years, first three to five seasons, but kind of ironed it out with strength training by, by 2005 and started, got my first kind of hundred mile win in 05 at Bighorn came back in one and got the course record in 06. Nice. And from there, I just kind of, kind of started to barrel and steamroll and the sport was still small. Um, and, and, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Um, and now I've just, you know, it's a lifestyle. Now I'm coaching and, um, and so kind of took over and had a career change in my, in my forties with coaching and, and running and, um, yeah. Enjoy it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Good for you. That's, that's great. I didn't realize you had so much of a, of a cycling background. Um, were you in the nineties, were you following sort of the cycling racing scene? Yeah, I actually you know, went to you know, or... you know in Scottsdale in, in March, they have the cactus cup. Mm-hmm. Me and my buddies were so geeky. We road tripped to, to Arizona. That was my introduction to Arizona. Yep. Um, it was in 2000 or sorry, not 2000, 1995. We went to, uh, on a mountain biking trip for spring break. It happened to coincide with the cactus cup. So the Norba kickoff for the year of racing. Mm -hmm. And we went and watched, uh, the Norba crit crit day in Scottsdale as part of that week. We mountain biked in Tucson for three days we mountain biked a couple of days in Scottsdale and we went up to Sedona and, and mountain biked and then headed back to Missouri. And, uh, we were dirt bagging it, you know, and, um, luckily one of our buddies, girlfriend, who's now his wife, but girlfriend at the time, her dad owned some hotels in, uh, in Arizona. And we got really good deals on like sweet hotels. Yeah, so yeah. we didn't even have to camp that time. Normally <laughs> yep. we would camp, but yep. I'd been on a mountain bike trip to Moab. I had been to, um, at before that and, uh, and to Durango. Yep. And so we went, we did an Arizona trip that year. Um, we got to see, uh, uh, hold on. Y- you might be able to help me with this one. Uh, really good mountain biker, Johnny, uh, oh, Tomac maybe was that it? Yeah. John yeah, Tomac. John Tomac. Yeah. Won so the crit was, yep. that day. Oh, it was cool. down to him, Steve Tilford and this German dude that rode for pro, pro flex. 
Mm. You remember those yep. pro oh, books? Yeah. Mike? Oh yeah. Yeah. With the yeah. like big thing on the back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of kind of like the Trek Y frame. A, a, yeah. A really those... shaky and like yeah. long. Oh, I bet that was the early yeah. early yeah. years of, of of full suspension mountain yeah. bikes, and they were trying yeah. to figure it out. There's all yeah. these experimental yeah. designs. Yeah. But they they came into the state every time that Tomac would go through. They had a little flat top jump. You had to yep. go through two 180 berms and then over a flat top jump and back out of the stadium and out into the desert. And, you know, there's cause it was a crit yep. and they, every time he'd come through, he would do a flat top jump and he uh-huh. would like wave to the crowd or kick his back end out, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, oh man. And so that day the win was amazing. They came into, they had to go through two 180 berms and then a straightaway to the finish line. They came in together in a group, the, the podium yeah. And they went around the corner. And if I remember right, Tilford tried to take the short, short part of the curve and he kind of washed out. It was loose. Yeah. So he lost. I think he got third. Him and the German, you know, Tomac and the German went up onto this berm. Yeah. And they came out straight away and Tomac out sprinted him and oh, he kneeled through <laughs> no the finish way. line. Yeah. Through the finish line and slowed down for like 50 yards, waving to the crowd. With a riding wheelie. the wheelie oh man waving with one arm oh, like it was uh, it was like you know for a i don't know at the time you'll see this would have been like this was 95 so i was yeah. like 24 yeah. and i was just like oh, oh yeah that's the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life yeah um, oh, so man. it was really cool like mountain bike you know i was just such a we were so into mountain biking yeah um, at the time so cool. you know and i still do i you know i still have a bike you know a, a garage full of bikes yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask that. Are you? I mean, do you ride actively? Do you sort of see it as part of your training? Do you do it for fun? Are you on the road yes. or a gravel bike as well, or mostly mountain bike? Uh, I have. Um, I have a custom steel twenty nine front suspension mountain bike that I use as a bike pack. It's more of a gravel type geometry, so yep. I use that as a bike commute um, uh, for runs. So I do run b- bike, run bike workouts once the weather's nice. Yeah. Perfect. So I, usually I in the winter, I, the bikes yeah. get, gather dust, but yep. once it's nice, like now I'll start doing like some of my, even if I have enough time, you know, my, the good trails and the Arizona trails only about four miles South of my house. So I might go through town and part of the trails just to get some of the stuff I run all the time out of the yeah, way. Yeah. On a bike. Stash the bike and then yeah, stash the bike, lock it to a tree yeah. with a cable yep. lock and like, go run and then ride back. So I got flat yeah. pedals on it. Yeah. Um, and it's a bike pack setup too. So I have a full bike pack setup for that. Um, I've done some bike pack trips too over the years. And yep. then, um, I have, uh, an old MB three Bridgestone as a, as a, uh, it's a 91 frame, um, as a, as a county bike yep. commuter, um, with netty bars. It's like sweet, um, yep. set up, um, and uh i have my old 98 mongoose pro sx which was like <laughs> no way oh, those mongoose bikes yeah yeah <laughs> that's back when mongoose actually wasn't in walmart and it actually had a yeah. pro team oh, those were the coolest yeah they were yeah. cool it was it's it's a high-end steel frame yeah um it has breezer tubing it's like the super light thin wall chromoly yeah. Um, but it's a 26 er old geometry. Yep. I, I've got it with a big riser bar on it now and um, have had, I've, I've redone it. It's, it, it was a single speed for a while. And now it's, it's like a monster. It's become all these different things yeah. evolved yeah. over the years. Yep. Um, it's still got the Dean titanium seat post on it. Um, and then, uh, but that was my bike back in the nineties. And then when I lived in Colorado, 
Yeah. Can't believe we rode some single trap you rode on the front range with that bike. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I was I'm I'm younger than you, but that was kind of that same time. Like I was a teenager and and I remember like, you know, I was 12 or 13 and I had my dad's old uh specialized rock hopper, you know, size XL. It was so big, like if I fell off the saddle, I would hit my crotch on the bar. Oh, like my, my feet good. couldn't reach, but no suspension, you know, obviously rim brakes. And me and my friends were riding up and down Bergen Peak, you know, which is this pretty dude that's a that's burly yeah it's a hilly it's it's loose it's rocky i mean you know i i know you've probably run and and rode there before but like that was that was i I rode that a lot when i lived in denver man we rode (laughs) that once a week yeah yeah um back in back in the late 90s then on that bike yeah. I can't believe we descended some of the stuff we descended on. Oh, that bike yeah. yeah. I probably saw you up there and my, my friends and I used to, uh, we'd get someone's mom this is in middle school in the summer. We'd get a drop off, like at the top of Mount Falcon, uh, which is kind of, you know, the Morrison Indian Hills area. And then we'd ride, you know, the same thing, no suspension, rim brakes, you know, that trail was like, so back then, no one did trail maintenance. I mean, just nope. Rocky loose and, you know, like we, we didn't have, no one had cell phones or anything like just these kids riding down a trail you know find a payphone when we get to the bottom (laughs) that's awesome we used to have a section on bergen peak where i can't even remember exactly where it is but you know how you do all the switchbacks and then there's a little bit of an overlook that looks to the south and then it goes up a little ridge line and gets really steep i know right where i believe me i know that one that section when i first moved to colorado from missouri right elevation 400 yeah right so like that first summer I tried to ride that section so many times Yeah, and there was a tree. It does a little switchback and there's a tree. Oh, I know. I, I can picture it in my mind, Jeff. They've rerouted the trail now, like a few years ago, they rewrite, you know, more erosion friendly or whatever, but yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. So that <laughs> section, I remember there was so many times that I would try to run. I had no idea of training back then. Yep. All I did yep. was know I rode hard. So yep. like, I would try to ride as hard as I could up to, yep. the, and I try to make that section every time. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, and I'd always get to this tree. I was always yep. trying to get this one tree. Yeah. There's this and, huge root. Yep. Yeah. It was a huge root and it was hard to yep. get up over, but yeah. I'd always get to there. And yep. I literally, there was a couple of times where I had to put my head on my saddle standing <laughs> yeah. outside the bike yeah. and just slobber coming out of my mouth. Yep. Oh yeah. Like, <sighs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. And wait for my heart rate to recover yeah. before I could continue. Yeah. Um, such oh, a good, man. Such a good I, I, bet, I, I bet I passed you up there sometime, you know. I bet we did, place. dude. I was there all, at least once a week. We yeah. rode that route. Yeah. I had a couple of buddies. We always rode Green Mountain. Yep. Um, I had a couple of buddies I worked with at an advertising agency. And every Tuesday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, we rode. We either rode Apex, yep. we rode Bergen Peak, or we rode um, Green Mountain. Um, almost exclusively those three yep. routes during the week. So yep. is one of those three routes, we, sh- we mixed it up. And then I always rode both days on the weekend. So yep. I rode four days a week, pretty much year round. Yeah. Or as long as there wasn't snow, you know? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, and then on the weekends, we go up to Walker Ranch or White Ranch or go yep. down pot towards Pine. Yep. Um, out on the Colorado Trail. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah, all those trips, man. Yeah, all those spots are still there. I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's getting more crowded, like it is everywhere. Probably Flagstaff uh, included, yeah. but uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons I we moved to Salida a couple of years ago, and uh, it's still it's not too crowded here yet. And there's some pretty good good biking around. 
Yeah. Um, I, I have, t- I have so many bikes, man. I mean, I have a <laughs> yeah. Santa Cruz high tower. I have yep. a, I have a, t- a road bike, a custom road bike, steel frame, same one that made my 29er mountain bike or gravel bike. I now call it. Yep. Um, at the time in 2011, it, that was 29er geometry, but now it's more gravel geometry. Yep. Um, and then I have a cross bike. So I, nice. I need to sell the road bike and the cross bike though, because I never ride them. They just yep. gather dust. Yeah. And have you gotten into the, the, uh, you know, turbo trainer kind of thing with Zwift or any of those programs? No, or not, I, I not have really a, yet? no, I have a, um, Nordic track stationary bike that I get on some, um, but mo- and I have a treadmill. So like yep. if I'm going to be inside, I'm usually on my treadmill and I, I might use the bike a little bit. Yep. I mean, I'll use the bike when I'm in, in injury mm-hmm. kind of cycle or something like that, where I'm d- dealing with something I need to like stay off of pounding it. Yep. Um, the bike is the first thing I go to. That's my cross trainer. Yep. So I will, I will get on the stationary bike. I used to have an indoor trainer, but once I got the stationary bike, I, I got rid of the trainer. Um, you know, if I'm going to be on a bike, I'd rather be outside if I can. Yeah. Nice. I I feel like we're seeing more and more, you know, even elite runners, especially ultra runners mixing in cycling, whether it's for, you know, injury or added volume or just mixing it up. I mean, the, the, the mental break doing something else, uh, you know, I think that's all, that's all good stuff. Well, and one of the things I've always liked about from a coaching perspective, like one thing I like about the bike uh, or from a training perspective is that you can go ride in zone one, zone two, zone you know, stay under your aerobic ceiling and still be at a cadence. Yep. If you concentrate on cadence and, and being in the right gear for a high cadence, you can be at a higher cadence than you could do your speed work at. Yeah. So it's, yep. it's really good for dialing in leg speed. It's really good for power, yep. right? General power, especially power hiking power. Cause you're bent over. Yep. You're in that, you're in that power hiking position already. So yep. it really helps with mountain power hiking. I feel like, yep. um, I feel like there's a bunch, a bunch of benefits. Plus, like you said, you know, uh, added aerobic volume, yep. like without the pounding and risk of injury, unless you crash or get hit by a car, you know, yep. those are the only times that like, if you're not a very good mountain biker, it's probably better to be on a gravel bike, you know, than it is to be on a mountain bike. Yep. Um, but I mean, I've been mountain biking since, you know, 93. So like skill wise, I'm still pretty good on a mountain bike, even though I have taken height, long hiatuses. Um, you know, so I, I, I think it's a great training tool. Yeah. Nice. And and how about other wintertime stuff? Have you gotten into, uh, yeah, I've done some that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I've, I've always classic skied for a long time. Bend mm-hmm. had, Bend had a really long Nordic season and actually the longest Nordic Nordic season in the lower 48. So, um, we just have really good trails and the snow stays around a long time because you have so much of it and mm-hmm. you're so far North. Um, so I got into classic skiing for big winter years. So, cause every season, every, you know, when living in Bend, we were kind of about every five years, we'd have a huge snow year. And so you couldn't even run anywhere. Like it mm-hmm. sucked. You just mm-hmm. were road running on hard packed crap. So that, that was, um, uh, I, I really got into classic skiing in like the mid two thousands. Then I got into backcountry skiing. And I ski, you know, regular ski too. And I used to snowboard um, when I lived in Colorado, but then I started skiing when my kids got young, I started skiing again. And I telemark ski, backcountry ski. Um, I don't do it a ton anymore, that much anymore, um, skiing wise. If I do ski, I like to go clap or uh, skate ski. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I learned to skate ski when I lived in Bozeman. 
Mm. Um, I really like the fitness and carryover to running and the strengthening of it. Um, plus it gives you really good pole work because you have so many different combos of polling that you use. Yep. It's like, you know, it's like dance steps. Yeah. Um, and you have to learn them all. And once you learn all the, all the, the rhythms, then when you get on trails in the summer with poles, it's totally skate skiing. It's yeah. like you have all these combos you can use yep. and you know exactly how to plant, how your technique, how you go over the fence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're pushing yourself over a fence, like that's the technique for yep. polling. And you yep. see so many people now that I've done it and I know the right technique when I'm out on the trails in ultra running, I'm always watching people like pole and they're all like this out in front of them. I'm like, Oh, such bad technique. You're yeah. not even using your poles, right? Yeah. You're not getting any benefit, but yep. it, that's one of the reasons I think the euros have such a, a huge advantage over Americans is because of the long time, uh, skiing backgrounds of most of those runners. And they both all do some kind of skiing in the winter. They are so good at poles that their poles are an added benefit instead of being a cumbersome thing that they're not sure what to do with them and how to use them. And, and they know exactly how to use proper technique. And I think that's, that's where they get the advantage. Um, yep. and that's where poles are an advantage is because it's very technique driven. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I, I like it. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of poles as well, you know, coming from skiing and then adventure racing when you're trekking along and stuff. And I, I you know, I recommend to all my ultra running clients at, at least try them out. And like you said, you got to practice and learn the technique because at, at first, if you've never used them, it probably is going to feel a bit awkward and you'll probably be doing things that aren't really that helpful. But once you get it dialed, um, yeah, super, super helpful. Well, and I definitely used them for the Grand Canyon. I, you know, I, I had done the, the, I'd done rim, rim, rim a bunch of times since I've moved here the last 18 months. Um, but I never used poles in the Canyon and I literally used my poles. I went out one day on Eldon just to get my head around. Cause I've used poles so many times and I do tons of strength training. So I wasn't worried about like being sore for it or like not, not having the musculature for it. I just needed to remind myself how to pole again, Yep. you know, cause I didn't skate ski this winter cause I was here and we had the Sedona had Sedona in the desert. And I just was so mm. stoked on my first winter here. Yeah. That I was just like, Oh my gosh, I'm going down where it's nice, you know? <laughs> so, um, and that novelty hasn't worn off yet. Yeah. Um, oh, good. Good for you. So you yeah, guys have been there. What, year, I didn't even, I only skied one time this year, like downhill wow. skiing. Yeah. Um, normally I would a bunch more times and backcountry ski, but this year I just didn't. Yep. Um, but anyway, I didn't skate ski or anything this last winter. So I wanted to kind of remind myself, you know, of the technique and it came back really quickly just on that one workout. And I was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. These are a benefit, you know? And I know yeah. how to use them really well. So like it, it, it definitely is a benefit. So nice. I just had to, um, nice. but they yeah. definitely help in the Canyon with all the steps and all the cobblestones yeah. and all the step ups. Yeah. 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 So tell us about this grand Canyon thing, this new FKT. I mean, we're just, uh, I don't know, a few weeks out from yeah. it. And, and I, I guess my context, just brief background, like, you know, a lot of people will go to the grand Canyon and they run or hike kind of from, well, you know, from the top to the bottom, and then they go back up and, and then, uh, you know, another group of people will start at one side, go to the bottom, back up and finish on the other side. 
And then a lot of ultra runners will do the, like you said, the rim to rim to rim. So you kind of start on one side all the way to the other and then back. And that's, that's, what is that? 40, 46 miles. On the route. Depends on there's the route. Two, there's two yeah. variations. There's two main variations, actually really three, but two, there's two trailheads on the South rim. There's South Kaibab and uh, bright angel. Um, South Kaibab, the rim to rim to rim FKT. So like the one Jim Walmsley has, Yep. That's traditionally the shortest route, and that is um, South Kaibab down to the river, North Kaibab to North Rim, back North Kaibab, and back up South Kaibab. So nice. it's basically an out and back. Yep. And um, remind me, for context, what is, what's Walmsley's current FKT? 555, I think. Yep. It's either okay. 554 or 555. Yep. And if anyone's unfamiliar with Walmsley, you know, he's kind of currently the, the, you know, the top of the top in ultra running, super, super fast guy. Um, Super fast guy. Yeah, exactly. So, I, um, so he has the rim to rim. To, he has the rim to rim and rim to rim to rim. Mm. He did it in the same effort um, yep. on the same day. Mm. He went for rim to rim, so south to north, and then he Turned got it. Came back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he kind of ho hum for a second. If you ever watch the video, uh-huh. um, he ho hums for a second, and he's like, "Ah, I'll make a good story," and he takes off. For the- <laughs> Yeah. for the other side <laughs> oh, uh, back to the where he came so um that's one and then there's also a variation and a lot of people that do rim to rim to rim as a as a fun run end up doing bright angel because there's more water there's no water on south kaibab except yep. the very top and then at phantom ranch across the river so mm. the other one is bright angel and it's longer instead of seven miles down to the river or down to phantom ranch it's 10 miles mm. so it adds the out and back rim rim to rim from Bright Angel is about 50 miles, just under 50 miles, yep. just short of 50 miles, 48, 49 miles. And then it's 43 and change, almost 44 from South Kaibab Trailhead. Yep. So the one I did. So okay. for the rim to rim to rim out and back. So yep. those are your two variations. And so some people will start at South Kaibab, go down and go to North Rim, then go back up Bright Angel because you can park at Bright Angel Trailhead but you can't park at South Kaibab trail. Oh, okay. Yeah. You have to take the shuttle over there. Yep. Um, so that's typically the rim to rim, rim, the variations. I did South Kaibab, North Kaibab. Yep. Route. Cool. And, and so you did the same thing twice. So we're talking, what yep. did it come at? 86, 87 miles or something? Yeah. Or? It turned out to be like, I think 86. And I think it's about just shy of 23,000 feet of climbing. Which is so, a lot. Yeah, it's about the same <laughs> and, as the big yeah. mountain hundred. Yep. And descending. Um, yep. you know, so a lot yep. of uh, you know, a lot of running downhill, obviously. And and I think there was a there was previously a a FKT or fastest known time. Um, right. And your goal was to beat it. What, what was the previous time and 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 where how how did it go for you? And where, where'd you end up at? So um I ended up um so Drew, a local guy, Drew Freeze. Phrase, I think it's phrase is how you pronounce it. Sorry, Drew, if I'm butchering your last name. He is um, on the video. I think there's a video. We'll mention this a couple of times. Uh, uh, what's it called? Keeping it tactical. I've watched it a couple of times. Keeping it tactical. On Keeping YouTube. it tactical. Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's awesome. Just documents this. And, and I think Drew was on there, right? He's got. Well, a- we have a lot. There's a background story to that name. Um, so I'll tell you that in a minute. But okay. Drew, Drew had it at seven at uh, 1929. Um, he just got it in October of last year. Um, and before that, I think it was 22 hours. 
or something like that. Someone else had it at 22 hours. So he broke it by quite a bit. Um, you know, I had been look. I, I got seven, I, I ran seventeen fifty five. Nice. So I broke it by about an hour, about an hour and a, a little over yeah. an hour and a half. Fantastic. Um, yeah, it was great. I, I had a good day. I had good weather. Um, you know, normally it could be really hot at Phantom Ranch in the bottom of the canyon. Um, like this time of year or the time I did it in a- mid-April, it's usually, or late April, it could be like in the 90s at Phantom Ranch. And we had a, a weak storm system blow through on the attempt day. Like as it was approaching, I was like, oh man, like we're going to have bad weather. You know, there was like snow, 40% mm. chance of snow and rain showers down in the canyon and lightning dance. Mm. And so all this stuff was coming, but as it approached, it actually, and it was super windy, but it happened to be one of those like perfect running days mm. where it was like seventies at Phantom Ranch and it was like forties at the rim. And, and you're only at the rim for a minute. You turn around and run right back down. So you're descending elevation quickly. So you just have to kind of tag the rim and just come back. There's signs of boards on both sides. And um, so I just, it, it ended up being amazing weather. And so I got really lucky that way. You know, I thought coming into it, it, it didn't look good. But then reflecting on it afterwards, I was like, that's the best day I could have had weather-wise. I got really lucky. Yeah. Um, just because I wasn't fighting heat. Nice. Um, so anyway, uh, it was a great day. We had some rain, some snow flurries, some rain showers, one lightning crack, um, after coming off North Rim the second time, um, luckily we were descending, but, uh, the guy pacing me, uh, Buck was like, did you see that lightning? And I was like, yeah. And, and he was like, and I was like, I'm glad we're descending. <laughs> yeah. At least uh, you're going, yeah. You don't want to go uphill in the lightning. Yeah. Totally you don't want to go than, uphill when there's lightning. Yeah, Better to go down. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, I ended up having a great day. I mean, I, I can't really complain. I, I felt on the whole time. I started at midnight um, and ran through the night and then, you know, was coming off North rim when it got when, at first light. Um, and then I, and then I was just chasing sunset. Well, that was the idea. Cause I kind of put it, I timed my start to be pushing like the, the record right at sunset. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, my, my goal was to like not have to put a headlamp back on. Yep. Um, and so that was kind of the carrot to push me at the end. Uh, well, at least that was the idea going into it. And I ended up being that feeding that by, you know, as it progressed and I knew outside, like I told my, I told my crew and everyone, um, and everyone publicly that I was shooting for sub 19, but I, I had been crunching the numbers the last three or four days from some of our rim to rim to rim runs, uh, you know, fun runs where you can just look at move time on Strava. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we had run it with a side, with a side trip to ribbon falls in, in like eight twenty nine. Um, and I, so I knew that like, okay, if I can run 829 on a casual day where we still, we weren't dilly-dallying, but we were, we we're moving well when we were moving. Um, I was like, I think I could probably hit, you know, nine hour laps. Yeah. Um, and so I told my wife the night before, like, I think I can go, I think I got a shot at sub 18. Um, I'd only told my initial, my immediate crew and my wife yep. that that was the potential. Just but so I they can be ready. Publicly, like sub 19. Yeah. But yep. I knew I had a shot at that based on my splits. So 
that's, cool. that was in my head the whole time. Yeah. Well, way to go. Congrats, man. It's, it's awesome. What a, what a cool, what a cool, uh, cool mark. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, this, this FKT thing, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, trail running, mountain biking, gravel biking in the last couple of years, it's really blown up. And, and a lot yeah. of these, uh, you know, marks someone, uh, whether we're talking cycling or running, someone very good will get a very good time. And you think, oh, that's going to stand a long time. And then, you know, someone else comes along soon and, and comes and real close it. or gets it. So yeah, it'll be, I don't know. Have, have you heard any murmurs or I don't know, do you no, know, I haven't like heard is, anything is about... uh, you know, is Walmsley going to go out and, and do the, well, do I the think he's, or... he's now in Europe for like the next year and a half. So that's right. He's got a big uh, UTMB focus going on. Yeah. Right? Big. So, UTMB okay. focus for two seasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if anybody want to do that, you know, you know, it is, it is running it twice. So it's freaking yeah. hard. Yeah. Well, um, and it's also, uh, you know, I, I mean, it may not be obvious to some listeners, but it's, you're taking care of yourself a lot out there. So, you know, you think of your typical ultra run, there's probably an aid station, you know, whatever, every 10 or so miles, you know, you got your crew, you got food, water, clothes, even many FKTs could be set up similarly where you could have, if, if you're doing a supported one, you could, you know, have some, some aid out there. I mean, this one really like basically you, you got water at the bottom and in the top, right? Well, the, the, I did do it. I mean, I would clarify, I did it supported. So yeah. I did have, I had two buddies that were willing to fast pack down into the Canyon, mm. um, a couple hours before I started. Yep. Um, and so they were, they, they posted up at Phantom Ranch. So they got me through the water stops fast. Mm. Yep. Okay. Meaning they already had stuff in their pack to fill yeah. you my bottles to, yeah. and extra flasks. So we could just swap. Um, and then I, I crewed myself mm. through the only water stops that I had was crew on South rim for the, the halfway point, um, Phantom ranch, which is basically mile seven. And then another nine miles up the Canyon. So mile 16, um, there's Manzanita, there's a water stop, the water spigot. Um, and then, um, North rim is off this time of year. They don't turn it on until May 15th. So there is no water in North rim. So I had to go up, had to carry extra water. Um, yeah. to get up to North Rim and back down to Manzanita because yep. that's my crew didn't miles. go to North Rim because they can't drive there. This yeah, time. you can't correct? drive. And it's a three yeah. and a half hour drive around. So if you're going to have crews, someone have to drive around and camp yep. and, and the gate isn't open yet until May 15th. So, yep. and the water's not on until May 15th. So yeah. anyway, I didn't, I had no one. I just went and tagged and yep. came back down. So I just had to carry an extra leader, um, to make it up to, up to North Rim and back down. Um, which was a little more water weight, you know, than if I, if I did it later, but the thing about doing it later is it's hotter. Yep. Right. So you're dealing with heat, even more heat down in the Canyon because the Canyon gets really hot down by the river. Yeah. Um, it's kind of notoriously really hot. Um, and if you wait till May, you're talking like probably going to be triple digits down by the river. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, most of the records have been set in either like April or October. Yep. Um, if you look at like traditionally how people run it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we did that and I, I was able to crew myself out of there. Cause I, uh, those guys kind of worked their way back up to Manzanita. So by the time I got back down, um, they crewed me through there. One of them was able to run with me down, um, down kind of pace down to down to uh, phantom. Um, that is kind of a, like 2000 feet over like nine miles downhill. 
Um, so it's real runnable, mellow with some roller ups. And he stayed with me. We ran down, crewed through there, and then he waited. And then I went up, tagged in the rim, picked up a pacer for the second lap. Uh, a local uh, ultra runner, um, uh, Buck Blankenship, who's another fast guy from from Flagstaff. He yep. saw Buck. He's on the film. Yep. Keep, keeping it tactical. Film. Look it up on YouTube. Buck's yep. on there. Yep. Yep. It's on there. <laughs> um, Buck, Buck and I just met um, right before, maybe two oh, weeks nice. before. Yeah. It, I, originally I had a friend from Montana that was going to come in and then he had some personal stuff. He couldn't, he had to back, back out the last minute. And so I was kind of frantically um, trying to find somebody. And I reached out to a couple of ultra runners in the community who I knew and they were like, Oh, I can't do it. But you're here's Buck, Buck, <laughs> Buck. I think Buck. And he was, he was getting ready. He was on three weeks out from a hundred miler. So a, a vert based hundred miler. So he yeah, wanted a big day for him. anyway. Yeah. And so it was perfect for him. It was like a good training run, you know, and, and we needed someone to pace the second lap in the daylight so they could run a GoPro, at, you know, get some GoPro footage as well. So, cause we were doing a film. So he, he just carried a little heavier pack and a GoPro a little, just single GoPro, not even on a stick. Um, so a lot of like the footage, you know, running footage during the day that, that is, is his footage. Um, yep. when we were down in the Canyon, but he was, he was strong enough. He's a strong enough runner that he was able to crew me. Like he would run with me, get GoPro footage. And then he was strong enough to the last mile getting into a water spigot. He'd just surge ahead a little bit. And, and then he would fill my stuff real quick. And, and I, he would just have it sitting on a picnic table and I would just take out empties throughout my trash. And then take the new nutrition. Cause I had them in Ziplocs yep. and, and I, he, I just grabbed my Ziploc, grab my new flask and leave. So I didn't cool. have to spend much time in the transitions. That's, I mean, if you're going to do supported, you've got to leverage supported, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. So wow. that was, and, and then I just had my family at South Rim for the turnaround, um, which nice. you see in my video as well. Yeah. And, uh, my daughter was running the person I high five behind the camera is my daughter running a GoPro 16 and my son, my youngest son was there. My oldest son had to work that day, so he couldn't come. Um, but my wife and my other two kids were there. So nice, nice. And, and so, what's their age range? Sixteen's the middle. How yeah, sixteen. The youngest one. My youngest son's ten. He's almost eleven. Hmm. He turns eleven this month. And then um, my oldest is nineteen, almost twenty. Nice. So he's working full time, taking a gap year. He just graduated last year from high school. So he's taking a year off and trying to figure out what he wants to do. He doesn't want to spend money yet yeah. um, until he knows what he wants to do, which is what I in, told him to do. Yeah. Cause I did yeah. the opposite. <laughs> yeah. money you, in college. You, you wasted money. And then I wasted money for three years, dude, <laughs> oh. before I figured it out. Yeah. Um, so I told him, don't do that. Yeah. Um, don't waste money, especially now. Back when I went to in-state in Missouri in the nineties, it yeah, was probably cheap, wasn't super you know? expensive. Yeah. It was, no, I, I took out, I, I got out of school with $27,000 in debt and a, and a four-year degree. Right. Yeah. And paid my way through. I worked the whole time too, part-time, but, but that's not very much. Now you're going to get out with a hundred, $150,000 for the debt. Yeah. Yep. You know? Yeah. So it's just not worth it. Um, it doesn't pencil out. Yeah. Good. And how about our, 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 your kids, are they into, you know, these, these kind of outdoor sports running, biking or. So my, my, my oldest, both my older ones, um, were on competitive climbing teams in their teens. So mm. 
um, for a while, um, both in Logan, Utah and in Bozeman. Yep. Um, my oldest was a really good boulderer. And so he was doing indoor gym bouldering competition, USA climbing, um, yep. you know, made it to, made it to divisionals in Denver right before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and then COVID canceled his last year of eligibility, basically. Oh, wow. Um, for the juniors based on his age. Yeah. Juniors yeah. based on age. It's all based on age group. Yep. So he lost his last year of eligibility because they canceled everything in 2020. Um, but you know, I mean, he was top, what top 20 in the nation for bouldering, um, yep. cool. back, back in ni- 2019. So, yeah. um, or going into 2020 yep. was when they were competing. Um, we were in Denver, I think in February of, of 2020 or Jan- yep. January, excuse me. Oh, okay. Um, when divisionals were. Yeah. Um, right before it shut down. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that right was the, the outdoor retailer show was we, around then as well. Yeah. I feel like maybe you and I were even in touch trying to go for a run or something. And yeah. Yeah. We, we had never, talked about it when yeah, I was in town because I we yep. just came in for the weekend for that yeah. competition, but both of them climbed. Um, my daughter likes to play soccer too. Um, right now my youngest is running. He, pl- he tried soccer. Um, didn't really click. He likes to run. So yep. we've just been running. We have, a, there's a r- local run club for kids. Oh, um, cool. we, we go to twice a week. Um, and then we try to get out once on the weekend for a little short shakeout yep. run somewhere cool on nice. trails. Um, and then my daughters and my wife just started running. Um, my daughter done a little bit dabbled in a little bit of running and they're both just casually running right now. Um, you know, two to four mile type type training runs. Yeah. Um, so they get out together sometimes and they've got a little group they meet with some homeschool group that they meet with on Tuesdays and Thursdays and nice. running. So everybody cool. runs a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Good for them. Did you, did you guys get into um, watching the climbing in the, uh, in the Olympics this last go around? Um, we didn't, we did not get a chance to watch. We watched a little bit of like some of the, some of the, Oh, you mean in the summer Olympics? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I missed the climbing that year. I don't okay. What was going on? Yeah, it just, uh, so this, this was, uh, the first games with climbing and I, I don't follow the sport too closely, but they kind of had an, a, a neat structure, you know, it's obviously all indoors and yep. it was a funny combination of basically bouldering, uh, you know, kind of your standard lead climbing and, and then speed climbing. Um, oh, yeah, but it was, yeah, but it was all together. Different. So there were only, yeah, there was, there was only, you know, three men's medals and three women's medals. And I, I think the, the climbing community, from what I understand, didn't really like the structure that much, especially because the speed climbing is, is so, so highly specific. Um, and it was, yeah, some, you have to, it's so specific in most of these most of these climbers, if they were in competitive climbing, they're only doing their it's, it's lead climbing in the spring and yeah. bouldering in the fall. And you exactly. don't do speed climbing. It's more like optional. Yep. Like they might have like a demo type competition or something where you could jump in it if you wanted to, but it wasn't required. Yeah. So most of these have, most of these climbers, they're very specific to lead climbing and bouldering. Exactly. They've always done yep. both disciplines and speed climbing is relatively new. So I would agree with that, you know, yep. criticism. I think the speed climbing thing's like cool to watch, but it should yeah. almost be its own metal because it's so highly specific. And the others to carry over between the two, yep. you know, the skill sets are very, very 
like you're going to boulder to get ready for lead climbing. And, and you know, you're going to lead, lead climbing carries over to bouldering. They both are, are similar because yep. it's methodical. Climbing is all about being methodical, you know, and knowing the right moves and not wasting moves. And even though it's timed, you have a certain, you know, four minutes or whatever to complete the bouldering problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as many tries as you want, but the person who can do it in the least amount of moves and the least amount of time is going to win. So um, who can read the route, you know, cause it's all blind. You don't get to, you don't get to face the wall. You're in isolation before you come out. Yeah. I think they have like 40 seconds or something. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, yeah, it's, it's all pretty cool. And then, uh, so how about the homeschooling front? Have you guys done that from the start with, with yeah, my wife's kids, done or? it from the beginning. I yeah. would have to say the caveat here is I am pretty much just PT. I mean, uh, PE, excuse me. Okay. Um, you, do, I, you do PE and bike maintenance and she does everything right. else. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am not, uh, uh, I, I do not do the homeschooling. My wife does. Um, yep. she's done it from the beginning. So all our kids have been homeschooled from the start, um, all the way through. And, nice. uh, yeah. So, which has been really nice for us for like all my racing and traveling and yep. traveling off peak times when people are in, you know, kids are in school. We can still travel when they're younger. Yep. Um, it made it a lot easier. Um, overall. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good for you guys. I'm glad it's been a good fit. Any, if you had like uh, maybe two bits of advice for a family that's trying homeschooling or thinking about it, anything come to mind that's, that's, you know, made it, made it good for you guys. I think the biggest one is don't get stuck on any one curriculum because mm at least this is the feedback I get from my wife is that you, you need to be willing to shift. The beauty of homeschooling is you can do custom curriculums for every kid. Yeah. So like, for example, there was a math curriculum. She was, she was started my oldest on and just wasn't clicking. And so she immediately ordered a different one and it clicked. Yeah. So it was just a matter of being, being willing to not just keep forcing the same thing. Cause that's the beauty of homeschooling is that you don't have to stick to a specific curriculum. And so she, she has a hodgepodge of curriculums. Like she has her own science one and she doesn't buy it all from the same, same thing. Yep. So she has a science specific science one. She has a specific math one. I think she's gone through like several math curriculums with different kids because different kids click with different type styles. Yep. Um, so uh, I think that's it. I think the other thing is, is that um, it's been really rewarding on our side because we've seen our kids for, you know, grow up and, um, you know, they never did go through that phase. And I went through this phase as a public school kid, um, especially once you get your teens where your friends are more important than your parents mm -hmm. and your family, meaning speaking in your life and talking about life and, and communicating about life. They kind of, at some point you kind of push your parents out of the, out of the picture and, yep. and don't really communicate with them anymore. And I think that one of the coolest things about homeschooling is that never stops. Like you, you can continue to, to speak in your kids' lives. They, they are very honest with you and upfront with you. And like, at least our kids are, you know, they're very, they, they, they still want to hang out, <laughs> which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're not all the time, but, but they still don't, they don't think we're stupid. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, and they come to us for a good advice. And, and I really, I really respect that. And I really appreciate my wife my wife's, you know, kind of, uh, having the vision on all that stuff. Yeah. Because I was totally like, when she said she wanted to do it, when our oldest was really young, I was like, you know, that was 20 years ago now or 
you know, at least yeah. 18 years ago when he's two or three is when she mentioned. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I was just like, I was like, what you want to do what? <laughs> Cause my perception was, you know, the 1980s and homeschoolers were weird. You yeah. Know? And cause there weren't that many people doing it, but now we have, we have millions of, of, of families doing yeah. homeschooling, especially after COVID. Yep. Um, and one of the coolest things is there's a really robust homeschool community in most places. Yep. Um, and you know, everyone always worries about the social, but I would always argue, like, look at the parents. If you have an antisocial kid at public school, their parents are pretty antisocial and weird. <laughs> yeah. You know, so like <laughs> it, it, there's, it, it correlates to the yeah. parents, right? Yeah. So it's a reflection of the parents. So yeah. we never worry about that. My, 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 I'm, I'm super social and have no problem with that. And we, our kids have been to Europe and, yeah. um, and traveled a lot and um, been all over the U.S. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they're, and, and now that they're, you know, one of them's an adult, I, I see him, you know, just working a full-time job and, and thriving in a full-time job and, you know, working circles around other people. And, you know, there's not, there's a lot of, a lot of people that don't know how to work these days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I, I like it. Well, great, great job to your wife on, um, you know, differentiating the instruction for each kid for, uh, m- making it personal. And, and yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think with, um, you, you know, when parents are proactive with homeschooling, you can have a lot of socialization, whether it's same age peers, also different age peers, which is something that's that a, that's the so kids true. miss out in, you know, your typical schools. And, and also um, a lot of socializing from, uh, you know, kids to other adults in the community, which is, um, which is very valuable. Well, and that's always been the cool yeah. thing about having kids come up through. They've always been around every age Yeah, um, through this whole thing, even in the homeschool circles, when there's like, you know, play groups in a park, you know, once a week or whatever, you know, they meet up, there's a whole bunch of range of ages. And so they have to learn to interact with different age groups. Yep. And and I think that's one of the things that's probably not great about public school is that you're all in this winter in, in real life after college. Are you ever in the same setting with a bunch of people, the same Only age? people your own age? Yeah, never, <laughs> yep. never. And the other thing I would say about schooling in general, one of the things that I, I experienced, my wife experienced, is there's a lot of bad habits you learn um, from school and your peers that you have to unlearn um, mm-hmm. when you're an adult. Yep. When you hit 30 something, you're like, man, I'm like, I have a really bad habit in this. And you're like, oh, yep. that's from my peers. Yep. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of auxiliary benefits to homeschooling that I, I really appreciate, or I've yep. learned to appreciate, I guess. I, yep. I criticized early on, but I learned to appreciate. Yeah. Nice. So, so on this note of, you know, teaching and curriculum, um, both you and I, Jeff, spend a a lot of our days uh, coaching athletes. And I think in many ways, that's, you know, an example of teaching. Uh, I think good coaching is done kind of like your wife does homeschool. It's, it's person first and it's, it's highly specific to, uh, to a person. Um, You know, all of that said, what, what would, uh, you know, if you had five minutes to give advice about ultra running, like what are, what are the, what are the staples or what are things, what are things that people are doing maybe that they shouldn't, or that they, you know, things that they should be doing. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure you could talk about this for two hours, but what are, what are the big things that come, yeah, that come to mind? I think, um, number one, uh, is, don't necessarily compare yourself to others because everyone comes from a different background. 
So some people are going to be able to handle 30 miles a week and some people are handle 100 miles a week. Um, it all depends on that individual person. And sometimes that can evolve over time. That 30, 30 miles a week might turn into 50 miles a week as an average or 100 miles a week. But, but you know, it, it's going to be a slow progression and, and it's a long game with ultra running and running training. You want to look at it from a longevity perspective, not just a short-term perspective. Um, I think that's, that's a, a, an important one to understand coming to the sport. Cause there's a lot of people, it's easy with social media these days and, and Strava and be able to look at someone else's training and be like, wow, well, Jim Walmsley runs 130 miles a week. I should run 130 miles a week. And no, yep. you should not. We've all um, made the mistake. When I was a freshman in college, Dathan Ritzenheim was on my team. He's a fantastic, oh. you know, <laughs> really good runner, way better than I was. And, and I thought all I have to do is run with Dathan every day. And uh, that, that ended up in basically not being able to walk about <laughs> two months later. So yeah. exactly. You're going to be injured, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, no, sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> no, you're good. And I think that that leads us into injury prevention and injury um, recognition, I guess, is a good term, is, is starting to recognize the warning signs of an injury before it becomes an injury. Mm. So knowing that I'm really proactive to quickly get on a mountain bike or go ride or get on elliptical or swim or do something cross training that doesn't aggravate the issue when something pops up. because Usually you can take the time to roll and stretch and do some other things to get on top of that issue, kind of sleuth it out, you know, go up and down the chain from where it's showing the symptoms showing up and work on the chain. Um, and then, um, and be willing to like, say, okay, I have a thing that I call the two day rule. And that is, you know, if you feel a niggle or something weird that isn't normal soreness from training, then you take two days cross training that something that doesn't aggravate it. And then on day three, test it. But that means test around the block, like 20 yeah. minutes. You're willing yeah. to walk home and go. And if it's still there, two, two day rules still in effect, go two more days, test it on day three, keep doing that until you can run again. So I think that's, a, that's an important one is, is not running through injury because that rarely pans out. I, I can't even really think of a time it's ever panned out for people. Yeah. Um, rarely, I mean, there may be one or one to 5% of the time it might pan out. Um, so that's one being, being conscious of your own body and learning to read signs. Um, the other piece I think is really important for me personally, as a 50 year old athlete that I, I feel like is a really important piece. There's two pieces to this and that's nutrition and strength training and mobility. And I put strength training and mobility in the same category because they kind of overlap so much, you know, because for example, air squats and side lunges are not really going to be strength. They're going to be more mobility, even though you're going to get some slight auxiliary strength from it, just because it's your own body weight, you know, really strength needs to be under a load. But I, I try to lift once or twice a week under a load with dumbbells, full body, core, upper body, lower body. Um, and then, um, uh, at least a couple of times a week, air, you know, body weight stuff, push-ups, pull-ups, core work, and, air, you know, side lunges, air squats, step back lunge with a high knee hold. So you're doing like glute engagement stuff. Um, I think strength training is a really important piece, especially as we age, um, you know, aging runners, especially after age of 35, you need to really, and especially after 40, you need to really focus on that and prioritize it. Um, it's really going to help you in the long run. I see it over and over with my athletes that I coach because I, I 
really push this one home. I don't, I don't, you, you can't come coach with me unless you're going to do strength training. Um, and so, uh, that's one. And then I have videos and I'm going to teach you how to do it and do the proper form. And you need to take the time to learn it, but, and, and baby steps, but you know, um, we want you doing that. Um, the other, the other piece is nutrition and you and I have kind of, you know, probably kind of see eye to eye on this, but, um, really prioritizing real food and protein as a, your first thing. Protein is like number one. So I would consider myself, um, animal based. And, um, and so I, I'm, I eat a decent amount of protein. I hit, I hit pretty much my body weight. I weigh 142 pounds. I hit 100, 140 grams of, of protein a day. Um, most days, um, you know, I, I want, I want to see my athletes 70 to hundred percent of their body weight and pro, grams of protein a day. Um, and you can't really do that on a vegetarian approach very easily. You have to do tons and tons of supplementation and then you're only not, then you got to look at bioavailability. And, you know, when you look at animal proteins, the bioavailability, you know, on like say a steak is 90%, 90 plus percent. You know, if you look at like, uh, beans and rice, it's going to be like under 50%. So you got to eat double that six ounce steak, right. In, in amount of food you have to eat. So that's so many calories that's going to be hard to maintain body weight. So I think it's really, really a, a challenge to not be animal based and be an ultra runner. Um, I know a lot of people won't agree with me on this one, and that one's probably going to piss some people off. Um, but I'm also 50 years old and I've been around the block a little bit and I've been a vegetarian and I've coached vegetarians and I see a lot of injuries in the vegetarian community and a lot of inflammation. And I don't in the, in the animal based community. Um, I see a lot of people thriving with good muscle mass, um, especially yep. when they get older. Mm -hmm. So when you combine strength training with animal based, um, it's really good. And you can, and I would say to those people that are, are worried about the environment, look into regenerative ranching techniques. I, we don't need to go into it on this podcast, but, but look into those because those are super important to understand where your food comes from and, and what's good for the environment because monoculture is not, and most veg vegetables and most grain-based stuff products are going to be, be grown on a monoculture model, which is horrible for the environment. It kills tons of animals. It kills, it, it ruins waterways. It ruins uh, biodiversity in, in plants um, because you're putting one, one plant on millions of acres and it, that just isn't good for the environment. And that isn't a long-term strategy for, for the earth, um, for the health of the earth. Um, you know, I would argue, like, look at, look at the way the, way the, way the North America is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be millions and millions of acres of, of grasslands with big giant herbivores on it. Um, you know, we could even argue right now that 50, there are 50 to 80 million bison alone, not counting other deer and elk and everything else herbivores on where we have corn, soybeans, and wheat. This is what I come from. I grew up in a farming community. I grew up on a farm. That was commercial farm, corn, soybeans, and wheat. Um, it is not a sustainable model. It's not going to feed the planet, even though there's a narrative out there that says that, but it is not true. When you crunch the numbers, it is bad for the environment. Um, and, and when we support that, it is bad for the planet. So um, regenerative agriculture is where it's at. Regenerative ranching is where it's at. Um, that's, the, that's the future of, of, of keeping the planet healthy. Um, and sustainable. Um, we just gotta, we just gotta overcome the narrative that's been pushed out there by big ag and big sugar and, um, 
you know, big agribusiness has done a really good job over the last 30 or 40 years of uh, putting out a narrative that is not true. Um, So look into it, people. Um, That's what I would encourage you to do. Yeah. Nice. Um, good. What else can we go? That's, that's probably five minutes at least. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Yeah. And we, in the, in the final, uh, I, I got to call an athlete here in five minutes, but as we, as we wrap it up, you know, maybe that leads to another thing that, that, uh, I liked what you're saying about how ultra running, it combines, you know, your previous interests and experiences, the climbing, you know, the maps, the routes, the exploration, et cetera. Um, I, I know for me that, um, one thing that I've taken up in the last few years that really, touches on all those, the adventure, the navigation, the wilderness, uh, you know, ecology, all that stuff. Um, and that's hunting. Um, I've I've discovered, I just, I, I love doing it. I love the process. Um, you know, the, the killing is part of it. It's, it's, you know, time-wise a very minor part of it, but it also, you know, for me, it, it, it makes me, um, uh, you know, take responsibility for how I'm getting my food and, and the life that's that's taken, which is, you know, you go to the store and buy some meat. You, you don't even think about where it came from. And, and you know, when we're, when we're sitting down and eating, like you said, a steak, I think the best kind of a steak is an elk steak. And, you know, I sit there with my family and I say, hey, guys, you know, let's give thanks to this elk. And we know when it died and where it died and how it died and how it lived. And that's that's a powerful thing and something I really like. So, so what, what about you? Are I think you, it takes you? on that. I think that really um, speaks to the responsibility and the, the appreciation of the circle of life. And I think, you know, we can't have vegetables without animals. You know, if you, if you look into how you fertilize, you know, vegetables, it takes, um, it doesn't just take manure, but, but blood, bone and manure, right. To do organic fertilizer. Like, otherwise you got to rely on petroleum products for your fertilizer, right? So we don't want to support petroleum products for our fertilizer. That's fake. It's, it's synthetic, right? So if we want to do organic fertilizer, we have to have all three of those elements. That means we have to use animals to be able to even grow your broccoli, you know, or your beans and rice. So when, when we understand that as a whole, I think that's one thing hunters, and in my experience, I grew up on a farm hunting, grew up hunting white-tailed deer growing up and ducks and geese and, 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 and upland birds. And, and I think one of the things that you learn from that process is it's not, there's a, there's a, there's a false perception out there that hunters are just a bunch of like death machines. And mm-hmm. most hunters, I know all the hunters I know, and I know a lot, mo- they all care about the, the health of the, that population, the, the, um, where it comes from, they eat their food. They, 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 they don't just kill to kill. They, they aren't trophy hunting. Now they might appreciate a good rack, you know, like a good bull elk, but, but they, they aren't, they aren't necessarily hunting just for that. They're hunting for the meat. They're putting, they're putting meat on their table and appreciate where that comes from, from a wild sourced animal. And I think that's an important piece to understand of hunting is one. I like that. It takes time. You have to like, it isn't easy, even with a gun, go try it. People. If you're out there criticizing people, hunters for shooting stuff with a gun, don't go try it yourself. It's not easy. I took a 25 year hiatus from hunting because of running and living in the West and, and all that. And I came back to it a few years ago when I moved to Montana and then now I'm in Arizona, but I'm hunting and I, I just bought a bow again. I used to have a bow, a compound bow. And so I've been shooting again. Um, and I've been practicing my gun and, and I hunted, um, a whole season in Montana and didn't get anything. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing was even close enough to shoot. Like 
I didn't even get a chance to take a shot, like tons of times out. So it's not as easy as everyone thinks it is. Um, so I, I totally agree with you that I think that, that this, this sense of adventure, um, in ultra running really carries over into hunting. Um, and especially with my philosophy on, on food and where food comes from and, and wild mimicked food, like you can't get any more wild mimic than wild. Um, so, um, I, I hundred percent agree with you on that. I think it's an important piece and I, I wish more people would embrace that piece. Um, or at least not criticize it because mm -hmm. they don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a lot more dynamic and intellectual and, you know, like you said, I mean, you, your, your typical hunter probably knows a lot more about ecology and conservation and, you know, wildlands and all that kind of stuff than, you know, the person who's criticizing him or her, yeah. uh, would yeah, be who lives, who lives in a city. Yeah, exactly. And gets their food from the grocery so. store and never, and has never set foot in, in, in the woods. So, yeah. you know, that, that's an important, uh, I think that's an important point to make in this. And, yeah. and I, I think that's a pretty good one to end on too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we will, but Jeff, great stuff, man. I, I sure, I sure appreciate it. I mean, congrats on, on all your running and adventuring and coaching and your family. I mean, the, the last uh, grand Canyon thing, that's, uh, that's awesome. Again, people can check out that, um, that video, uh, keeping it tactical. Um, I know you got some stories and photos and stuff up on your Instagram. Um, let's see, what's your, your website? What is it? Go Bronco Billy.com. Yep. Go Bronco Billy.com. Same Instagram, yep. Twitter, uh, Facebook. It's all go Bronco Billy. Yep. Um, you can find me there, find my coaching there. Go yep. Bronco Billy.com. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Thanks, Any Travis. other, yeah, yeah. You. Any, anything, other places people can look for you? This summer, you got some races or adventures scheduled? Um, I am or? doing Scout Mountain 100 beginning of June in Pocatello. And then I'm doing Hard Rock in July. Um, then I have a little bit of a break and I'm doing my first 200. I'm doing Moab 240 right. okay. in October. So cool. I'm excited to take the step up to 200s. Um, I've been coaching people to it a long time. I coach Mike Knight. So he's obviously oh, nice. very, very... Uh, experience to yep. a mile runner. And he got I the record him. there last year, right? With he the, did. With I paced him phenomenal time. Miles. Okay. Yeah. You guys yeah. were cruising. I can't remember what the time I, I cause I was tracking it live. 55. Like, it was sub 56. It was really fast. <laughs> yeah. It was fast. Yeah. He ran, he ran really well. So, um, so we'll see if I can get anywhere near that this year yeah. cool. for my first, but yeah, I, I'm sure I'll make a few mistakes, but yeah. um, good for you. I'll do my best. Cool. Well, thanks, Jeff. Good stuff, man. Keep, keep in touch. I hope our paths uh, cross in person and uh, yeah, keep it up out there. I know people are going to love, uh, love hearing from you. Yeah. Thanks, Travis. Appreciate it, buddy. All righty. Have a good one. See ya. Yep. Bye. Big thanks to our presenting sponsors, The Feed and Kyoku. Check out thefeed.com slash Travis Macy. And from that site, you can explore Kyoku, K-Y-O-K-U. This is a creamy and delicious breakfast shake that uses 16 superfoods to fill you up without feeling too full. It gives you long-lasting energy for work or workouts. I like this stuff. The Kyoku tastes good. Um, it's quick and easy to mix up, uh, again, usually for breakfast, but I'll also use it uh, in a pinch for a recovery after a workout uh, before I drive back home. And uh, more and more, give them to the, this stuff to my kids. Uh, 
in the morning before school. Uh, if, if you're like me, you know how hard it is sometimes just to get the kids to school on time and uh, especially to get them there with some uh, good fuel in the stomach and particularly some protein. Uh, that's one of my favorite things about Kyoku. A lot of good, healthy protein in there. Again, check it out, thefeed.com slash Travis Macy. Hey guys, thanks as always for listening. Sure appreciate you being part of our team. Uh, if you feel so inclined, rate the podcast, review, subscribe, uh, maybe even share it out on your social media or something. Uh, all of those things are very much appreciated. We are uh, gaining momentum. We'll keep these things coming at you. And uh, we've got another good one next week. Conversation with my buddy, Jim Harshaw. Have a good one. We'll catch you next time. The Travis Macy Show is part of the Palm Tree Pod co-network of podcasts. It is produced and edited by Anthony Palmer. The content for this episode is created by me, Travis Macy.